right, and welcome back to another edition of the Alonzo Bet. We're your hosts. I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. And we're recording a very, very special episode of the Alonzo Bet via Zoom today. We are social distancing, making sure that everyone's staying healthy. So if you see a slight drop-off in audio quality, we apologize. But health, as it is for y'all, is of supreme importance for us. Um, and we're just doing our best to stay safe here today. Yeah, and we have a really exciting episode for you guys today. We're sort of going to update you on the latest of the returns of the NBA and MLB. I know we talked about this last week, but there have actually been a lot of development since then. And there's very good news for the NBA. There was actually a plan approved for the restart of the season. We're going to give you all the details. The MLB, the news is less encouraging, but, you know, I still have some hope that things are going to get done. In Stat Corner, we're going to be talking about a StatCast stats that we sort of alluded to in the last episode when we did our, our StatCast primer, but this is outs above average. It's the new fielding stat that uses StatCast data. You can find it on Baseball Savant, so we're going to get into all the details of that. And then finally, we, we have a sort of a fun game for you guys. We're going to be making all-decade teams where basically we choose for each position a player's sort of full decade of playing, but you can only put one player in each position and you can only use one player from each decade. So Aaron and I both tried to build this ultimate all-decade baseball team, and we'll see how much our, our lineups overlap. Or, and, and, and you guys can let us know at the end who made a better team. That's right. So with that, uh, just a quick reminder, guys, please uh, follow us on Twitter at the Alonzo Bet if you need to reach us, Twitter DMs, or at thealonzobet at gmail.com. And make sure you're reviewing us on your favorite podcasting platform site, whether that's Apple Podcasts, whether that's Spotify, whether you're a Stitcher freak out there, make sure you're giving us reviews. Uh, they really help us. and They really help us reach a wider audience of listeners. So let's just kick this episode directly off with some very exciting news from the broader sports world that the NBA owners and players have reached an agreement to bring the NBA back. Sam, can you break down for us what's in this agreement? What's different from the regular season, besides the timing, obviously? And what are the ramifications going to be of this agreement? Yeah, sure. So, so today, the league had a vote, and 29 of the 30 owners voted to approve this agreement. The Portland Trailblazers were the lone dissenters, but they basically are eager to resume the season. They just voted no because they thought there were some better plans out there. But basically, the details of the plan is that not every team will be returning to play. Only 22 teams will return to Orlando, and that's nine teams from the Eastern Conference and 13 teams from the Western Conference. And the standard that was used to determine which teams would be returning is basically if you are currently within six games of the eighth seed, which is the last spot in the playoffs in the NBA, then you are going to be invited back to participate. Um, and this is all going to be happening at uh, the Walt Disney Resort. So actually, this Sam, season happened. Sorry, let's really quickly let's just say what that means exactly. So um, Sam just mentioned if you're within six games of the eight seed, you're coming back to play. That actually means two very different things for the two leagues that's in the right. East. Yeah. That's only nine teams, and this is I'd say pretty common year to year with the East and the West. There's only nine teams in the East competing for a playoff spot. Um, but there's actually 13 of 15 from the West are still within six games of the eight spot. Yeah, it's kind of a and, scrum at the bottom. And you must have been really excited to see that your Phoenix Suns are returning to play some games here. They just snuck in there. And let me tell you, you don't want Devin Booker on a shortened schedule, okay? Because he's got too much sauce to handle. And uh, just to finish up what Sam was saying there, they do need to play these games at Walt Disney Resort in Orlando. They're a partner of the NBA and ESPN and ABC. I don't really fully comprehend how they're all bl uh, blended together. I know that Disney owns ESPN and ABC, um, but uh, where the NBA falls in that, who knows? And so they're playing at uh, Walt Disney Resort, and there's a bunch of weird uh, rules going on. So uh, they're doing kind of like a, a I think, eight-game or 15-game lead-in, something like that. It's, What's yeah, the number? It's, it's eight regular season Right, eight regular season every games. Game. And they're calling these seeding games, uh, right. which, which, which basically the idea is that they're just finishing the regular season. It's 
partially for teams to have the opportunity to work their way back to get into form before the playoffs, but it's also to determine who the playoff teams are going to be. And the way that the playoff, the playoff teams will be determined is that uh, basically uh, the top seven teams in both conferences will automatically make the playoffs. And then there is the possibility for a play-in tournament for the eighth seed. And basically what would happen in this play-in tournament is that if the ninth seed finishes within four games of the eighth seed, uh, which is very likely to happen in the Western Conference, as there are oh, a yeah. lot of teams... It, it almost are, certainly will happen yeah. in the Western Conference. There's there almost no of, way around it. Yeah, there are a lot of teams jostling around over there. It's less likely to happen in the Eastern Conference because the Wizards are five and a half games back of the eight seed Magic, and they're the only other team that's out of the top eight right now. So the Wizards are not that good. I don't necessarily expect them to win that many games. <laughs> they're the low-key bad, Sam. Yeah. But, you know, it's still a possibility, of course. They only need to pick up a game and a half on the Magic in these eight games to, to get into this playing tournament. But basically... If the ninth, ninth seed is within four games of the eighth seed, there will be a play-in tournament between the ninth and eighth seed for the right to play as the eighth seed in the playoffs. And the way this play-in tournament would work is that these, team, these teams would play two games against each other, and the ninth seed would have to win both of these games if they wanted to get through. So it's still giving a big advantage to finishing in the eighth seed over the ninth seed, but it is adding some extra excitement, giving the ninth seed a shot. And, you know, like, it's going to be exciting to watch. Like everyone's right. going to have a blast, a blast watching these games, uh, both the playoffs and and the play-in games. Uh, and so, it's so great we, to see sports getting back, Sam. It's just great exactly. to see us getting back yeah. to playing sports. And the and, other uh, thing here is that before we go into ramifications, um, I saw something so interesting on this proposal, and it just caught my eye, and I wanted to get your feeling on it. They're saying that if someone tests positive for COVID during the season. They're just going to pull them from the lineup. Everyone else is going to keep playing and be continuously tested and make sure, making sure they're not positive, but which is, you know, uh, I'd say a little bit spurious from a public health standpoint, but from a basketball standpoint, what if LeBron and AD, who we know are friends, are like hanging out one night, they both get COVID, and then they're both gone from the Lakers in, like, the fourth game of the second round of the playoffs. Like, they just lose the finals, right? Yeah, I mean, of course the ramifications of any team having a COVID outbreak would be, you know, terrible for them. It would basically end their chances, you know, in, in the situation you described. Of course, the Lakers season would be functionally over. Now, of course, injuries play a big part in any basketball playoff season. I mean, a big part of last playoffs is that KD and, and Clay were – basically not available in the finals. Again, right, not take right. away from, from the Raptors winning it, but, you know, a big part of two seasons ago was, was that Chris Paul tore his hamstring yeah. to, when, the, when the Rockets were up 3-2 on the Warriors. So sort of, I, I think it would be wrong to be like, well, the results are illegitimate because this is COVID-related injuries versus, you know, just some other injury. Now, of course, the COVID-related injuries seem less controllable, whereas maybe these other injuries... Less controllable and, really... and more of a of a domino effect, right? Like, yeah. if some guy breaks his leg on the basketball court, it, the other players on his team can't catch broken leg from him. This is like if one, you know, the Lakers, theoretically, they, they probably couldn't because there's still really good teams in the NBA, but especially in a shortened season, like, the Lakers could lose LeBron or AD this year and still have a good shot at winning the finals, right? And so if one of them were to break their leg, you'd be like, oh, that sucks, but at least they still got a shot. But if they're hanging out and they both get COVID from one another, it's a totally different situation. And yeah. I actually am prepared to be like, all right, well, if something like that happens and the Dallas Mavericks end up winning the uh, championship this year, like, I'm not putting a lot of stock in that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think people's sort of evaluation of how legitimate the season is will depend a lot upon, like, who actually ends up winning. Like like you said, yeah, that's true. If, if, it, if it ends up being the, the Bucks or it ends up being the Lakers or Clippers, like, even if, even if some other team got wiped out from COVID, people are still going to be like, yeah, well, these right. are, you know, the three best teams in the league. I expected one of them to win. So I, I, I do think that our evaluation of what was fair, what was legitimate is going to be a lot of, like, post-rationalization to, like, the results that we do end up right. seeing. But, but and that's yeah, totally I, legitimate because it puts teams like, and I'm sorry to pick on the Mavs again, 
but it puts teams like the Mavs in a weird situation where like they have so much talent. Like Luca is a top five player in basketball right now, probably, or was this season. And they could win the finals in like a weird fluky season where like things just break exactly right for them. But if they do it this year, we'll almost certainly be like, oh, well, you know, it's the COVID season and they really yeah. didn't deserve it just because we have these preconceived notions. Well, if, if Porzingis wins the finals, the finals with the Mavs this year, you, you might just, uh, I, I don't know what's going to happen to me. Uh, oh, my God. So, so uh, the other, yeah, sorry, go ahead. The, unfortunately, the Knicks were not invited back because I really thought, that, you know, they're coming together. Uh-huh. is finally playing well. You Nick thought they had a shot? Through. I really think they could have gotten into that playoff play-in game for the for the eighth seed, taken out the Bucks in the first round, and suddenly they're rolling. Taking out you the might Bucks, remember yeah. the, the last shortened season for the NBA was 1999, and the Knicks were the eighth seed that year and ended up upsetting the one seed Heat and actually making the finals that year. So we could have seen something similar, but the NBA is against the Knicks. They didn't want to give them a shot. But. If you guys are impressed with <laughs> Sam's Mets fandom, if you're like, how does this man remain so dedicated to the Mets? His Knicks fandom is far more impressive. They just constantly tear the kid down. He watches every game and is so sad afterwards and then continues to follow him. It's extremely impressive. Unfortunately, as you mentioned, the Knicks will not be playing this year. Of course, the superior team, the Suns will. But the other thing we want to mention here is that um, – there's a huge timeline shift that results from all of this. And this is um, something that we can compare to baseball in a minute here, but they're talking about playing the rest of the season from about July 31st to October 12th. And that necessarily pushes back the lottery for the draft to August 25th. The lottery, by the way, under this proposal is frozen in at the records when the season was suspended. So since the bottom of the barrel teams, which are theoretically the, Uh, Lottery teams are no longer going to uh, be playing basketball. The NBA figures we're going to freeze a lot of positions. It makes sense. It's a, it's a little, it's a little suspect, but it makes sense. I I think that is actually where Portland had their main dissenting opinion and why they voted against this. Portland wanted basically the results of these final games to have some effect on the lottery odds. My understanding as well. there, There might be some perverse incentives here where like, it's not actually that great to be the HC and play the Lakers in the West. So, like, the question is, are teams going to maybe tank out of the eighth spot and just try to get in the lottery? Uh, we'll see if it happens. I mean, like, I don't think Portland's going to do that. Uh, like, Dame, well, you but, know Dame But they, the can't, they can't right now under this formula because the lottery's set. No, but, right? but, um, but the, the 14 teams in the lottery will include the eight teams that are left out of the resumption. And oh, right. The six, Sorry. The right. six teams that are in the restart but don't qualify for the playoffs. Right, but right. I, do, I, I do think the odds are set with the current records, but like it will still, it will, who actually gets into the lottery will still be by yeah. de- determined by who's not in the playoffs. And, no, that and makes sense. I'll tell you who the NBA is begging to get into the eighth seed in the, in the Western Conference, and that's the Pelicans, because it is going <laughs> to be a, a big money grab if you see Zion versus LeBron in the first Yeah, game. 100%, like, 100%. And I'll be honest, I'd be a sucker. I'd watch every one of those games. I'd yeah, watch, awesome. I, I, it would be a terrible mismatch, but I'd watch them all. So we're going to move from the National Basketball Association, which came to this agreement. I, well, in, well, before we move on, one more point is that the, the, maybe, maybe I missed that you said this, but the, this is, the fact that the season is getting pushed back uh, to end in October is not only going to delay the lottery, but it's also going to delay the start of the 2020-2021 season. Yes, so I'm sorry. That is where I was going yeah, with that. Yeah, so typically, you know, you see the basketball season start in October. Uh, but what we're going to see here is that the, the NBA has floated December 1st as a start date for, um, for, the, ne- for the next season. Although I think uh, players have sort of pushed back a little towards that. They think the sort of the layoff time is too short. And you might end up seeing start times as late as Christmas. Which would be an interesting start time for the NBA because Christmas basketball is like sort of the equivalent of Thanksgiving football. It's like a it's a big day for the NBA season when it comes to regular season basketball. So I think it would be kind of. But cool that's because it's like right around the middle, kind of like it's a big but, point. 
that's true, but like given the tradition of Christmas basketball, like it would be kind of cool if it was sort of viewed instead as like an opening day for the next season. Like I, I would kind of dig that that notion. Yeah, I agree. Um, and this actually leads nicely into what I was just saying, um, which is when you look at this NBA proposal, which came together so, so quickly and involves all of these like I, I don't want to call them concessions because I don't see people giving up so much because there's not as much economic incentive in the cost sharing model that the NBA employs compared to the MLB. But you see everybody just saying, okay, well, things are going to have to change. We're just going to have to change things to make sure we play basketball this season. And everybody just got on board in a very short period of time. And, and you'll notice that the, the, the seven owners or, or eight, the eight owners who are not, who their teams are not going to play, they approved the plan because they right. are so, sort of able to see, like, this is what we need for the long-term health of the league. Right. And also, like, yeah, they're, they're not going to play. They're not going to make more revenue this year because they're not playing. But they look yeah. at this and they say, okay, we're in a world that's rapidly evolving. And this likely is not the last time we'll see this thing in our lifetime, probably, this type of thing. And when we encounter a similar problem, we want the owners who are in that position then, if we're making our team better, to support us in the same way. Um, it's, it's just a it's a good business decision in my opinion. And it is just a law, the long-term thinking that lacks in the MLB. So with all that preface, let's get into what the MLB is saying. So we talked to you on the last episode about a owner's proposal to play about, you know, 50 odd games, whatever. Um, so the one with, we talked about last time was, was the 82 game season. The 82 yeah. game. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. The 82 game proposal with a sliding scale pay reduction where the highest paid players, lose the most money and the lowest paid players lose the least money off of their original salaries. And we talked about the vitriol and the backlash that came from the players because they saw this as um, in many ways, they saw this as a lot of things, but they saw it, I think, especially as a backdoor to cost sharing in the MLB, which they really want to put a stop to as a union. We now have the players unions counter proposal to the MLB, Sam, and there's been movement on this since. So I'm going to explain the proposal and then we're going to let you go into what's happened since the proposal came out. Sounds and good. the players proposal is that they will play 114 games. The players want to play ball. I cannot say that loud enough. The players want to play baseball. They want to play 114 games with a prorated salary. So they will get, with 140 games, they will get about 70% of their salary. And the season would run about June 30 to October 31st. So the start times here are still very, very similar. They're very in line. Um, and the players kind of tried to come back and say, we know you won't get um, revenue. We know that a longer season increases the risk of a postseason cancellation due to COVID. We understand these risks. We're going to say that the deferrals that your team owes players. So all these teams owe player deferrals for one reason or another. The king of deferrals, Bobby Bonilla, has been paid by the Mets since like 1980. And so they're saying deferrals only occur if the playoffs are canceled. If the playoffs play, you don't play, you don't pay anybody their deferral for this year. So they're trying to offset some of that economic impasse. Um, but of course, the numbers don't really line up still. The owners uh, still consider themselves losing a lot of money. Um, and so the players, to even further assuage those fears, have gone as far as to allow a expanded playoffs for two years, which is something that Sam and I really hate. We'll talk about it in a second. We know the players don't believe in it firmly, um, but they've said we'll go from 10 to 14 teams for two years and two years only. Um, but then they ask for a salary advance. And of course, the final thing in there is just about making the games accessible to the fans, which again is what the players want, especially. And that's to where microphones um, and other broadcast enhancers, quote unquote, whatever that means, on the broadcast. So they're throwing something out that has a lot of wins for the players. Of course, it's coming from the Players Association. They are giving up some concessions. And they kind of came out and said they don't expect this to be a deal that gets accepted, but they'd like to see a counter proposal. And with that, Sam, if I missed anything, fill in. Otherwise, tell us how the owners reacted because we've heard news on that um, pretty recently yeah. within uh, the last day or so. Yeah, so the, the owners ended up rejecting this proposal and they've actually said, we are not going to give you a counter offer. Uh, 
And now th this is sort of a, you know, this is often used as a negotiation. Uh, unbelievable. That, yeah, saying we're not going to give you a counteroffer. But basically, you know, Aaron mentioned this, but the reason the owners are really scared about having this long season is, again, almost a, a lot of their revenue is coming from the playoffs. So the longer the regular season is, the more likely it is we get a second COVID outbreak and the playoffs ended up being canceled. Now, the players did offer these salary deferrals if the playoffs are canceled, but, you know, the deferrals still would have to be paid in the future. The owners still view this as a loss of revenue. But, and, and, you know, this is why also the players said, okay, we'll go to extended playoffs for two years so you can even make up more revenue. But the owners are just very scared about the prospect of, the playoffs being missed. And because of this, the owners have basically, they have not actually given this proposal to the playoffs, to, sorry, to the players, but they have leaked sort of what they are considering to the press. And what this is is basically, instead of having an 114 game season with prorated salaries, we would like to have a 50 to 60 game season with prorated salaries. An absurdly short season as, as baseball concerns, but basically the idea is that if the season's very short before the regular season, you can get to the playoffs very quickly and make sure they make the revenue from those playoff games as opposed to playing all these extra regular season games where the owners don't really see themselves as making a lot of revenue. Now, you might say, well, this is actually a step forward for the players because now the owners are actually agreeing to pay prorated salaries. But if you actually do the math, this is going to be about, you know, 30%, a uh, 50 game season would be about, I think, 31% of their salaries being paid in full. This is actually, in fact, the exact same number that the owners were offering to the players in total with these uh, sliding pay mm -hmm. scale cuts in an 82 game season. So basically what the owners are coming out and like saying, but not flat, they're they saying with their proposal to the players, like, hey, we have a certain amount of money that we're going to we're going to give you guys. And it's up to you whether you want to do it in 50 games or 82 games, but like, we're just not going to give you more money right. than this. That's right. what the owners are trying to say. Now, the question is, if they have this proposal on the table that they are considering, why are they not giving this as a counter offer to the players? And the reason for that is that back in March, the players and the owners made this agreement to, you know, have a season with prorated salaries. And this is given that it's economically feasible and that we've talked about this on past podcasts. That's where a lot of the debate's coming on. But the position of the league is that that March proposal gives basically Rob Manfred the power to basically just say, we are starting a season with 50 games in the regular season, whether you like it or not with prorated salaries, you agreed to this in March. So as the MLB sees it, they don't really have to, this is not a negotiation with the players they have the power just to just enact this plan. I, and this, I'm not sure Sam, how well that would go over. Right, and like this yeah. speaks to the core of the issue. Like, I, you know, have been watching ESPN a lot this week. I've seen a lot of player discussion um, on, you know, a lot of the news cycle has been dominated by uh, the racial injustice that we've seen so blatantly uh, in the last couple of weeks here in the United States. And so that's a lot of the discussion, but what you see throughout the conversations that are being had by NBA players, by NBA owners, by NBA coaches, there's a lot of synergy in that league. They listen, the league listens to players, the owners respect players and coaches and players feel like they're on the same level. And that's easier in a league where your roster is like 12 guys, basically, than yeah. it is in a league where your roster is 25 with an effective 40 on call. But it really is mind-boggling that even with roster sizes twice as large as the NBA, the MLB, excuse me, the MLB cannot find a way to bring everybody on the same page. And it's never more evident than it is when the owners are saying, we're not even going to give you a counteroffer because we believe that we have a legally binding document that forces you to do what we want. When this document explicitly is contingent upon, quote unquote, good faith negotiations between the MLB and the players union. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, yeah. It is it, just, it's a travesty because we're going to lose baseball this year. 
and we potentially will lose baseball for the next year when the CBA needs to be renewed. And nobody is learning anything. We're not learning about how to run a league. We're not learning about how to interact with the owners. The player side is definitely in the right here, but there needs to be some type of awakening in the game of baseball that we are so obstinate and we are so stubborn and we believe in such a rigid system. We're losing young fans. We're losing seasons due to labor negotiations. Like this is 1930. Something needs to flip here or baseball is in danger of losing even more fans than it has and becoming even more obsolete than it is today in American society. Yeah, and you know that's not to say that the fact that the owners have not submitted a counter proposal like means that baseball is not happening this season. Like I still think there is a path to it happening, although the clock's running out. Like if they want to start the season at the end of June, like they need these guys to start a second spring training really in a week or so. You know, maybe they might start a little bit later, but again, that makes it more likely that the playoffs end up running into the second uh, the second pandemic. I think I think plausibly, Sam, just to finish that thought, I think plausibly, if the season's going to be played, we will reach an agreement within the next 10 days. I think anything longer than that is something that's already shown to be unacceptable by the owners. And I, I don't see it happening if it doesn't happen. Yeah. And, and to add to that, like, that's why it's so weird that, for instance, like the players submitted this proposal to the owners, like at the beginning of the week. It took the owners three days to reject it and not even give a counter proposal. It's just like, where's the urgency in these negotiations? And like, do they, do the owners even want, do they even care if a baseball season happens? Now I've, I've one, one question I wanted to ask you, which is basically like we talked about how legitimate the basketball season would be if, you know, some star players got COVID. Now, if the owner's proposal goes through, if we end up having a 50 game baseball season, would you view that as like sort of a legitimate season? Like 50 games in baseball, like, you know, the Nationals were, were 19 and 31 after 50 games last year. Like, do you think that a 50 game baseball season that then goes into a 14 team playoff can like possibly really give a legitimate outcome to the, to the season? I mean, do we ever talk about the 94, 95 World Series? Yeah, like, yes. These people will hang trophies and they'll celebrate and their fan base will call the championship legitimate. Certainly I will if the D-backs come out with it. But no, if you play a 50-game season, so even at 82 games, I, I'm putting a big asterisk there. At 50 games or 51 games, whatever it is, that is basically within like the – margin of error for how teams perform you can go back i believe every single season over the last 40 years and with the exception of maybe 10 so maybe 75 percent of these seasons you will see a bad team a team that does not make the playoffs have a 50 game stretch where they are the second or third or fourth best team in baseball it's just not that crazy to play a third of the season well and to not have a good team it happens all of the time and so if we're going to have a 50 game season, I'm not, I'm really not, with 14 teams in the playoffs. I mean, that, yeah. that actually doubles the craziness of it because not only do you have this small season, but when you get into the playoffs, as we've talked about many, many times, anything can happen. And if you're going to have 14 teams in there out of a 50 game season, who's going to win the world series? The Padres? The, the Marlins could win the world series. For all honestly, yeah. honest to God, the Marlins yeah. could win the world series. Like, it is just, no. (laughs) Sorry, the short answer to your question is no, Sam. I cannot give it credence. But I would still watch it. I would still eat it up. I found myself in here watching KBO every single day this week, by the way. I love that. We got a great, we got a great set of teams going at it right now. Um, And you know my boys over there in Doosan are are really putting the hurt on everybody else. Yeah, I'm happy for you, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. But uh, so I don't know where this goes, Sam. And again, we want to ensure our listeners that we will be here with a special edition if the story breaks uh, in a non-scheduled podcast day. But right now, the economics to me, maybe I'm pessimistic, they look insurmountable. Um, I think the, the form of the negotiations, even if something 
comes this year, even if we get baseball this year, the form of the negotiations has hurt the long-term outlook of baseball as a sport. And something needs to change. And that thing is Rob Manfred. Yeah, I mean, I think he is a big part of the problem. I think the owners are possibly a bigger, an even bigger part of the problem. But, you know, in the, like we've said, in the NBA, Adam Silver, David Stern in the past, he understood that the job of commissioner is a job of balancing the interests of the players and the owners. Rob Manfred is a puppet for the owners. So, you know, and in that, fairness that, to him, problem right there. Yeah. In fairness to him, so is Goodell in the NFL. They just that, have a, yeah, yeah. they just have a corporate structure that is far more effective at oppressing their players than the MLB does. <laughs> that, um, that's true. <laughs> but, yeah. with, with that, with that dark and pessimistic uh, turn, Let's move to everyone's favorite segment, and that is Stat Corner. And today, we have a very fun stat we're going to be talking about, and that is outs above average. So in the past, we've talked about two, defensive, uh, two advanced defensive metrics in UZR and DRS, but this is sort of the new wave of defensive statistic. It's outs above average. It's developed using StatCast data. You can find it on Baseball Savant. So Aaron... Can you break down for our listeners what exactly is outs above average? How are they calculating sort of the defensive value of players? Absolutely. So as Sam mentioned, uh, this is piggybacking off of our last episode where we mentioned StatCast. So as a quick primer, let's just remember that what StatCast does is they collect motion data. So they follow the motion of the ball, both uh, its path and its rotation and its speed. They follow the motion of players on the field using two different systems. And they put these together to say, with a player positioned in this position and a ball hit to this position on the field, so a certain amount of, a di- certain amount of distance for a player to travel with a certain angle in a certain amount of time, they say this ball is caught X percent of the time. And we will make a quick note here that in previous episodes, when we talked about uh, averaging and when statistics try to make a prediction about how likely an outcome is um, o- across the entire league, you have to look at a time frame. And we actually talked about this in UZR and DRS. They look at different time frames, one versus three seasons. The uh, metric of outs above average does not have publicly available data on how large its quote unquote bins are, it, how much it, time it's looking over. It, at least as far as we were able to find. So if any of our listeners actually know the answer to this, we'd love if you let us know and we'll, we'll let, oh, please, rest, yes. we'll let the rest of our listeners know next episode. But as far as we know, please. I do not know sort of the, the averaging interval they use for calculating catch probability. Right. So to get back to it, they take this batted ball data, where the, where's the ball going, how fast is it going, yada, 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 and they take where the player is, and they take the time that a player has to make the play, and they calculate how often does someone do this. So let's say there's a lazy fly ball hit to center field. Its uh, exit velocity is about 70 miles an hour. Um, its distance is 270 feet, and the player had to go 10 feet in uh, 10 seconds. That catch probability is 99%. So if a player does it, he gains one, 0.1. If he doesn't do it, he loses 0.99. And so immediately something you may see from that is that these these outs are not turned into runs like they are in DRS or UZR, where they take the out that you may get, they turn it into a run, and then your UZR DRS is actually calculating how many runs you saved in defense. Outs above average just tells you how many extra outs a player gets on defense than the average player in the league. I will note, though, that actually a new feature, a new recent feature on Baseball Savant is that they will convert these outs to a run value for for you guys, where basically they find that the the average out is worth more in the outfield than in the infield because, you know, hits in the outfield can turn into like doubles and triples, whereas most hits through the infield can turn into singles. Right. And so, um, as actually Sam just alluded to, this statistic was originally only for outfielders, um, but they've extended it to infielders. They've recently made the improvement for direction. It used to just be like, how, where's the ball going and how long do you have to get there? Um, but now they're saying, are you moving to your left? Are you moving to your right for directional outs above average? So you can see that Victor Robles, who led MLB in outs above average last year, actually was far, far superior uh, to his left than he was to his right, 
Um, and you know, that's his glove hand, so it's not crazy. But uh, it is interesting to look at all these things. And I think what's important to mention here, Sam, um, is that this is the next wave of generation, or sorry, the next generation, the next wave of statistics. This is taking raw data about the path of the ball and the path of the fielder or the path of um, the pitcher, to, uh, pitcher's pitch to the plate and turning them into something that makes a very broad, very general, very context independent assessment of how good a player was. And outs above average is the first expression of that uh, in the StatCast era, I would say. Yeah, yeah and I think uh, it's important to note, like, we're saying this is the next step in defensive data over UZR and DRS. And maybe you're, you're sitting there at home and saying, like, well, why is this stat actually doing a better job of tracking defense than UZR and DRS? And I think basically the main point is that by knowing the fielder's positioning at the beginning of the play and exactly how much ground they have to cover to get to a ball, you can sort of get past all the noise and sort of shift data and positioning of fielders before the, before that, that is sort of a problem in UZR and DRS because what UZR and DRS have to do is they have to rely on sort of measuring zones of the field using tracking services that rely on the human eye to basically look how players are moving but what uh, outs above average allows you to do is know exactly, basically, how far the fielder had to move to make a play and were they able to make a play. So maybe a good example of this is imagine a ball that's sort of the hitter gets jammed. They hit sort of a, a blooper into center field. Now, UZR is just going to calculate for every, you know, all the time that fielders have the same chance of making that play. But that's obviously not true. Now, if it was like a slap hitter like D. Gordon who had that hit, then the center fielder was probably playing pretty shallow. So they're going to have a better chance of making that play because they have less ground to cover. Now, if it was, let's say, Pete Alonso who, who got jammed, the outfielder was probably playing pretty deep, and this is going to be a hit a lot of the time. So this is sort of an example of how uh, outs above average is more nuanced about how it's sort of calculating what the probability that a, a, a fielder makes a play is. And the other thing I think that bolsters that, Sam, is when you look at year-to-year -year correlation between outs above average and UZR and DRS, you see that outs above average is actually more reliable at predicting what a player is going to be like as a fielder than UZR and DRS. And I think that that is a testament to its success at using raw data as opposed to human intuition, because you cannot mask actual physical trends that exist in batted ball data, whereas the implicit bias or uh, the error levels. It could just be that humans have 10% error. And so they're actually predicting the same levels and have the same R squared, but humans just have too much error in, in making these judgments. Whatever it is, outs above average does seem to be a little bit more successful at predicting year-to-year -year correlation. And in my opinion, actually does a little bit more context-neutral job and good job in a context-neutral sense of predicting how good a player was at converting batted balls to outs versus the rest of the league in a given year. Yeah, if you guys want to go have some fun with outs above average, there, there are a lot of interesting ways it's broken down. If you go on Baseball Savant, you can find things like which outfielders have the best first step, which outfielders have the most efficient routes to balls. You can find things for, in, like Aaron mentioned before, directional outs above average. So which, which fielders are getting the most value from moving in on balls, from going to their left, from going to their right, from going back. And there's another interesting way of evaluating fielding, which is to evaluate from the perspective of fielder roles. And this is uh, an important thing in the shifting era where you might see someone who's a third baseman, but when they shift, they end up playing, let's say, in the second base hole. Now, in UZR and DRS, they're going to treat this guy as a third baseman, but what outs above average can do is basically say, well, how well does this guy play when he is in the second base position? So you could say, well, this guy is, even though he's a third baseman, he's he has a lot of value when he plays as a second baseman sort of in the shift. And that's just another interesting granular piece of information that outs above average is allowing us to see. So there's a lot of awesome stuff that's being done with outs above average. They keep adding new things to it, making it more refined. And again, you can find all the details of this on Baseball Savant. Uh, 
it, it's an awesome stat and I'm, I'm really excited about it. Yeah. And as we mentioned, they do now have a uh, directional outs above average and you can actually go and see if they have like a little pie chart with four cardinal directions on it. And you can go and see. So to give you an example, because we actually didn't go into this, a good outs above average, Victor Robles led the league last year with 23 outs above average. Um, on the other side of that, Eddie Rosario was able to somehow, and this is shocking, put up a minus 17 outs above average last year. That's that's truly shocking. But you can see that somewhere in the 20 range is the extreme end. And you can break this down. So Robles was really, really good going to viewers left, outfielders right. Um, I, I said it kind of backwards previously. But he was only average going back. He only saved three runs going backwards. Um, and as you scroll through the leaderboard, I urge you guys to go on Baseball Savant and check this out. You can see that actually no one's that good at going back. Uh, like Randall Gritchick and Brian Goodwin saved three runs going back. But what does that even mean? Um, and so this is, a, this is a great statistic with a bunch of like very granular breakdowns that you can see now. Um, and I would really urge you guys to go check this out. I will um, just point one guy out because I think it's interesting. Um, Bryce Harper saved one uh, out above average last year. He didn't save any going to his left or going back. He lost three going to his right, which is, again, for Bryce is actually his glove side. Before I said it was uh, Robles' glove side, but it's not Robles' righty. Um, but somehow Bryce Harper saved four runs going in, which is tied for the best in baseball. So coming in on a ball, almost nobody is better than Bryce Harper. He charges and he is fearless. But boy, can he not get to any other ball on the field, basically. <laughs> um, so this is a great stat. I urge you guys to check it out. Um, if we left anything on the table here, if you guys want to hear a stat, I know we sound like a broken record, but please reach out to us. We're breaking down new stats every single day. We love to look at these things and we love to bring them to you. Um, and with that, we will go into our very special segment today. This one should be fun. Sam mentioned it at the top. Uh, I will kind of remind you right now what we're going to do. We are going to pick a quote unquote, all decades team. And what that means is that we'll be allowed to pick one player from each decade starting in 1910 and ending in 2010, or sorry, ending in 2020. So the 2010s decade is the last decade we can pick. We'll pick a full field. So that's uh, all the infield, all the outfield, the catcher, the pitcher, and a DH, and we'll pick a closer. Again, only one player from each decade. So Sam, with that in mind, how do you think we should go through this? Should we do decade by decade? Because that really was the hard part of picking this, for me yeah. at least. Yeah, let's go decade by decade. So we'll say who we had for each individual decade and obviously what position we put them in. So let's start with the 1911 to 1920 decade. And I actually filled out my, my starting picture there. I went with Walter Johnson. Uh, Walter Johnson uh, compiled... 71.3 uh, war using the fan graph war metric over that decade. Uh, and I thought that was just a good way uh, to get a pitcher out there. Pitchers threw more often back then. They threw a lot more innings. So it was more possible to amass value as a starting pitcher back then. So I thought it would, that would have been, it was good to sort of get my pitcher out of the way early. Yeah. So that's a good pick, Sam. Um, I will start this by saying that when I do a decade, it's actually not 1911 to 1920, it's 1910 to 1920. It just wasn't fair anymore. Yeah, I mean, so I he, had to make, I had to make some very, pitcher. yeah, he was. Yeah. And I had to make some very last minute adjustments, but I think I came through with uh, a good choice here. So I will say originally I had Babe Ruth in this spot, in the 1910 spot, um, but I had to change to Napla Joy. So I have oh, Napla Joy. I have Napoli Joy playing the keystone here. This is actually my lowest war of any decade on the board. I originally had Rogers Hornsby playing second base, but I had to switch it up for Napoli Joy. Um, and it, it hurt me, I'll be honest. Um, but I had to put him in there. Again, he has 
the lowest war of anybody uh, in this list at 21.5 over this decade. But he was a heck of a player. He won six gold gloves in the decade. Um, he won an MVP. And this is a guy who could hit the ball. He could field. He's a classic kind of dead ball player. But he's fun because a lot of us don't know him. Indian second baseman. Um, I got to give the nod to a guy with a funny last name, Napoli Joy. All right, so let's move to 21 to 30, and I, you're going you're gonna to call me an idiot for this one. I did not go with Babe Ruth, and I actually went with the guy who you said you wanted to have play second last second. I went with Roger Tornsby, and Roger Tornsby had 87.6 war over this decade, so an incredible decade, averaging almost nine more a season. And he had 97.1 if you start in 1910 and go to 19 or uh, 1920 oh, wow. and go to 1929. So, so I, I should have used your decade to look at the more defensible, yeah. <laughs> uh, more defensible one. Uh, but but basically, you know, Babe Ruth was better over this decade. Babe Ruth was over a hundred war in this decade. But the reason I had to go with Roger Tornsby is that outfield is just such a deep position. Like you're just going to find great outfielders in a lot of decades. And finding this much value at second base was going to be a really hard thing to do. So that's why I chose Roger Tornsby. So from a, if you're trying to amass a team with the highest war sand, I think you did a tremendous job. But for me, I'm making this all decades team. I can't leave Babe Ruth off the squad. So I shoehorned him in here in the 1920s. And guess where he's playing on the field? Where? Trick question, he's not. He's my DH, okay? Okay, so, I, I, I don't mind that. I don't mind that. Although, he, I, I would say maybe you should say so, – I'll, I'll admit, this is a bit of a preview. I also cheated a little bit at DH, but the person I chose at DH has at least played a game at DH in their career. Well, look, Babe, I can promise you Babe would have DH if they had it back then, okay? Yeah, and, and, he and did not want to be in the field. Yeah, and that's why I like the spirit of the pick because Babe Ruth – is the quintessential DH if the position had existed <laughs> he is at the a time. DH. Okay, so I appreciate that you like that, but you mentioned, Sam, he had over an 100 war. I don't think you did it justice because he had an 129.4 war from 1910 or from 1910 to 1919 or 1920 to 1929. I'm sorry. And he was um in his decade no maybe no one's had a better decade certainly no one's had a better decade by war uh and so i got babe ruth here in my yeah, 1920 you know, spot maybe maybe it's crazy that i left babe ruth off <laughs> it's a little crazy okay but that brings us to 1930 who do you got uh so 1931 to 1940 i went with babe ruth bash brother lou gehrig uh he had uh he's my first baseman had a 66.6 uh the devil F4 over that time period. Uh, Garrett, you know, just an iconic baseball player, sort of the, you know, one of the original great first basemen, great power hitters. Like, I'm putting Garrett there. I'm with you 100%. This one was the slam dunk for me. Um, I actually, you left outfield. I left first base because I just thought you can find a stud at first base basically in any. Um, in any decade, and I had the 1930s at the end of my list, and Lou Gehrig slotted perfectly in here, so I'm with you 100%. All right, so with that, let's go to the 41 to 50 decade. And I actually had a lot of, I, I was really splitting hairs uh, here between two guys, but I ended up going with Stan Usual. Uh, he had 65.5 F4 over the decade, although I will note that this is the decade where World War II happened, so a lot of these guys missed, I think, three seasons. Uh, so 65.5 war, that's really over, you know, eight seasons, uh, even, even or seven even. So it's, it's yeah. much more impressive than it sounds. Uh, let me hear who you got, and then I'll, I'll let you know who I, was, who I was sort of weighing next to him. Well, I don't know who you were weighing, Sam, but if it's not the guy I took, then you're off your rocker times two. I had Teddy Will here. Yeah, because okay. that, he, that's who I, I mean, was playing. But, but for the me, man wrote out, the book on hitting. And, and Ted Williams is a Ted Williams is a better player than Stan Musial. He had four straight seasons this decade, like where he had like an over 200 WRC plus, over 11. And if wide. you if you include 1940, Sam, which does help Ted Williams yeah. because he was in his prime in 1940. 
But if you include 1940, he has a 70.1 war from 1940 to 1949. So he, uh, the way I calculated it at least, is uh, the leader in this decade. And also, he's just another guy. This is, this is how I constructed my team. Like, Stan Musial was a great, great player. But I'm never itching for an all-time lineup that has Stan Musial in it, whereas Ted Williams is the quintessential hitter. Uh, he wrote the book on it. He's the guy. And so I had to have him on this team, so, and he fit perfectly. So, so let me say why I ended up going with Musial over Williams. And it's basically that Musial was like basically a right fielder, and, and Ted Williams basically only played left field. And there was a guy that basically I wanted to slog into left field later on. And I thought basically the drop off between Ted Williams and, and Stan Musial was, was small enough that yeah. it was worth le- leaving Teddy off so I could slide this guy into left field later on. Well, um, you're not going to like this one bit, Sam. But I didn't tell you this. Teddy's my right fielder. Oh, okay, okay. So yeah, I know he played mostly <laughs> left field. And I know I, I told you I cheated twice. I know he played mostly left field, but he could get it done. And with my left fielder, who I imagine probably has the exact same name as your left fielder. I don't um, think he does. I don't think he does. Really? Okay. Um, I They could both find a way to play right field. They can figure well, it out. Well, well um, okay. If I'm allowed to put Ted Williams in right field, then I also choose Ted Williams. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. So that brings us to the 1950s. I'm really curious here because – um, this was my hardest spot, both on the field and in divisions. Um, I and I really – who'd you pick? I picked Yogi Berra. Oh, so interesting. I, I, filled out my I, catch, I filled out my catcher spot there. This is actually – well, besides for my relief pitcher, this is my lowest, my lowest uh, decade war. It's only 47, but it's hard to find a good decade of, of, of catchers. And, and Yogi Berra is sort of this iconic, you know, winner, guy who won the most World Series of anyone in baseball. I mean, I, I think he's a great guy to have on the team. Yeah, and I, I can tell we did this very different ways because he's your second lowest war. My guy is the third lowest war on my list. So, like, we definitely have a bit of a, a stretch here, but – for the 50s, I took another guy who I just love and is so quintessential to baseball. I took Ernie Banks to play shortstop for me. He's like the him. let's play two kid. He had 39.6 war in the 50s. He brought it into the 60s, eventually ended up at first base and kept hitting. Like, This is an awesome guy, but a fun way to fill out shortstop because I had some other positions. I think we, we did this in a couple different ways, Sam. I went to guys I know I needed. So for me, catcher is actually a really good example because there is a best catcher all time in baseball, and it's not that close, I would say. And so Yogi's not that guy, and I put him in there. I agree with that, and I originally had who I think you're going to say is that guy on my team. Yeah, you definitely did. It turned out that I just sort of wanted to put someone else from that decade on my team to sort of put put it together more correctly for myself so i ended up getting the catcher over with with yogi in the 50s let's go to the that's 60s. fair let's go to the 60s and uh here i have the guy who just won bill james is the sort of the creator of sabermetrics his online twitter poll for best you know modern era baseball player i put you know the say hey kid willie mays in center field 76.8 f4 over the 1961 to 1970 decade. And the crazy thing about Willie Mays is that I arguably could have put him in the same spot using his 1951 to 1960 decade as well. Yeah, you could have. I mean, you definitely the, could have. He's arguably the greatest baseball player of all time. Had to have him on the team. It's to say, hey, could Willie Mays in center field. Yeah, I mean, Willie Mays, and this is a spoiler, but Willie Mays is my greatest regret on this list. I didn't find a way to put him in. Wow. Um, I know, I know. And I, I tend to agree with you. He is one of the greatest players of all time. But for me in the 60s, this was my spot to get starting pitcher done because this is the most dominant stretch of pitching we have ever seen over a decade. And I believe that Bob Gibson in the 60s was so dominant, they lowered the goddamn mound for the guy. So you, I have Bob know, coming in here. 
with 54 one, war from 60 to 69. You know, the one guy uh, who kept dominating after they lowered the mound is Tommy Terrific. Tom Seaver. <laughs> well, and this was tough for me, too, time. because I almost put Koufax here, because number one, how can you not put a Jew on the list? You know what I mean? Yeah. And number two, Koufax did have the most dominant three-year stretch in pitching history, potentially. But Gibson for the decade was just lights out, yeah. so he eventually got and, the nod. And, and you could say that Gibson's 68 season is arguably the greatest pitching season of all time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and so with that, let's move into the 70s. For the 70s, I have my guy at catcher here. This was like one of the first two guys I penciled in. Johnny Bench has to be the catcher in this list. He's a two-time MVP, a 10-time All-Star, a Rookie of the Year. Uh, this is just in the 70s. Was a Rookie of the Year in 68, which is obviously a bit before. Had 158 ribs and 45 bombs and 125 ribs and 40 bombs in 70 and 72. Almost 400 career homers in a 60 war, basically, in the uh, 70s. I mean, for a catcher before framing and all that was prevalent, that is incredible. Yeah, I mean, Johnny Bench, I think, has a very strong argument for being the, the greatest catcher of all time. I, I cannot fault this decision at all. I originally had him on my list, but as I was sort of moving pieces around, I needed a third baseman, and I ended up going with Mike Schmidt here. Uh, so Mike Schmidt's my third baseman. He had... We're talking about catcher. No, I'm saying in, in the 70, 1971 to 80 decade. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. yes. I, already, I already have Yogi as my catcher. So, so 71 to 80, I have Mike Schmidt, 58.9 war over that decade. One of the all-time greatest third basemen, both as a hitter and a fielder. Just, just a great guy at the hot corner. So Mike Schmidt's my third baseman here. I'm sorry, I only get so confused there because Mike Schmidt is also my third baseman, but I have him in the 80s. He had 56.6 <laughs> war in the 80s. Like, he's an all-time great, and I'm sure it helps that 1980 overlapped on both of our lists yeah. there because that was a great year for him. But, um, I mean, he had 12 All-Star games, 10 gold gloves, a World Series MVP, three MVBs. Um, he's a stud. He's a no-brainer. Um, so I also had him, and that's why I was, like, looking at you, like, what are you doing? You know, we both have Schmidt, but... You're right. We were talking about the 70s. I had Bench. You had Schmidt. In the 80s, I have Schmidt. Who do you have? In the 80s, I actually filled out my release pitcher here, and that is uh, Lee Smith. Uh, longtime leader. I in, hate that. Longtime leader in, in saves, 20.3 uh, war over the decade. Uh, but you had to get your release pitcher in there somewhere, and, and you really can't start doing it until the 80s. I had guys I wanted to put in every decade after that. So I had to go with Lee Smith there. Like, but, okay, so I, I, I understand that because I, I went through the same mental gymnastics that you're describing. But I had Trevor Hoffman here, and I had to take him out because Trevor Hoffman cannot be on any all-time team the same way Lee Smith cannot be on any all-time team. Lee Smith, and no offense to Lee Smith, by the way, who I'm sure is a, a, just a great guy. But Lee Smith, flat out, sure, he saved a ton of games, okay? Lee Smith saved uh, a 478 games in his career. But what was his career ERA? A hair over three. But he had seasons of 582. He had seasons of 388. He had seasons of 357. Yeah, but, that, but he none, only of amassed, those, not, none of those were in the 80s, though. He only amassed 26.6 career war. In his career. But, 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 okay, but, okay, I know who you're going to have as your closer, obviously. But let me say that in the decade where I think you chose him, he had 22 war. Lee Smith had 20.3 war in, in the 80s. So it's just like, yeah, I agree that the guy you're choosing is the greatest all-time closer, but we're just talking about taking this guy for a decade. And if we're yeah, okay. taking the 80s, I think I'm getting almost as much value out of my closer just from that decade of Lee Smith in the 80s. And then that's going to... So I, I, I just want to make two points. In. in my calculation, Lee Smith actually has 2.2 less war than in yours because in 80, he had a 0 0.2 war and in 1990, he had a 2.4 war. Fair, so fair. 
and Mariano has 1.4 war more than you're counting. So we're talking about a, a 4.2 war swing between these two guys. Okay, that's fair. And that's fair. so we, let's just keep that in mind. to be more clear about our decades. That's right. That's right. Um, but okay, so you have Lee Smith. I get it. But I just like, I, if you're talking about making an all decades team or an all time team of any kind, if you bring Lee Smith in against my lineup, He's crushing you, right? The only <laughs> respectable answers here that are not going to just be destroyed by the lineups that we're creating are Dennis Eckersley, our Raleigh Fingers, and Bruce Suter, maybe, and Mariano Rivera. Like, those uh, are the only guys I, in my mind who, I, who qualify. I originally had Raleigh Fingers in there, actually, but uh, he was much better in the 70s. So, uh, and I was, maybe, maybe what I ought to have done is taken Raleigh I had Fingers the same problem. Maybe I, I was taking Raleigh Fingers in the 70s and then Mike Schmidt in the 80s. Maybe that would have been a better solution. That would have um, worked. That would have worked. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe that's what I have to have done. Um, hindsight is 2020, and so we'll just have to move on from the 80s where, once again, I had Mike Schmidt and Sam took Lee Smith. We're going to move on to the 90s here, which is a fun one. And the only question is, did we take the same guy here or did you take my guy in the next decade because my guy is Barry Bonds. That is also my guy. And I think where we disagree probably is that I slotted him at DH. Uh, and I can actually defend my decision to slot him at DH because he did play four games as a designated hitter in 1999 during interleague play. So Barry Bonds was at one point a designated hitter in the major leagues. Babe Ruth was not. Uh, but, but Barry That's Bonds, fair. Barry Bonds is my DH. Uh, if you look at 91 to 2000, uh, he had 79.1 uh, F4. Uh, I'm not sure what it was. And 90, and 90 to 99, he had 78.1 F4. Uh, so yeah. we're only off by yeah. one win. Um, so yeah, so we both. So that five. one's a slam dunk. We don't even yeah. need to talk about Barry. The guy's a legend. And if you ask me what year I want Barry Bonds, I want him in 2003, actually. But if we're talking about what decade, he was actually better in 90 than he was in 2000. He was 78.1 war versus 62 in the 2000s. Yeah, um, well, well, so, oh, oh, 01 to 04, Bonds is arguably the greatest four-year stretch in modern baseball history. And yes, of course, that's correct. He, he was out of the league, you know, by 07, so you're missing three years of a decade. And, of course, 1990 to 2000, Barry Bonds is a Hall of Famer in himself, so... Right. That, that's, a, that's a great pick. With that, let's move to the 2000s, so 2001 to 2010. I slotted in A-Rod at shortstop. Uh, that's that's 70, a great pick. That's, that's a great pick. That's 70 F4 over the time. And I, you know, A-Rod, I, I actually originally had A-Rod at third base in this decade, which I think he probably split the decade about evenly between between playing yeah, short and third. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, but, but I ended up wanting to get Schmidt in there. So, so I have A-Rod at short. Uh, who did you have? Uh, well, I had Mariano here, and I oh, almost yeah, had A Rod. Yeah. yeah, I almost had A Rod, um, and I think that's a great pick because A Rod's an all-time leader in WAR. Well, he's not the all-time leader, but he is a all-time leader in WAR. Um, he is one of the greatest players we've ever seen play baseball. He's one of the greatest players to ever play baseball. Um, but uh, when I again, when I was making this lineup, I was like, I cannot live with myself if anybody else is closing games besides Mariano. Um, so I prefer having Mariano and Ernie Banks um, than I do having uh, Lee Smith and A-Rod, even though their war calculations for their um, respective decades are maybe a little bit higher. But, yeah, uh, of I course, think, I think that's a pretty fair point. Uh, that's but, that's part of the fun in this, right, yeah. is like putting guys together and trying to see how they fit. So um, that brings us to our last decade. And uh, Sam, you may not like who I have here. Uh, who you got? Mike Trout. I like that. <laughs> he's, play, he's he's playing center field. He took Willie's spot, though. That's the thing. Willie should be playing there, but I had to give it to well, Mike. Well, I have to have to admit that I cheated a little here, and I also have Mike Trout playing left field. Uh, and, and Mike Trout has started 77 games in left field in his career, which is more games than Ted Williams has started in right field. So if you, <laughs> if you get to put Ted Williams in right field, I get to put Mike Trout in left Okay, field. yeah, you're right, you're and, right, you're and, right. And uh, this is why, you know, I felt like I needed to get Willie Mays on this team, but then, you know, how do you pick anyone else but Mike Trout for this decade? 
one other maybe defensible choice would have been putting like like Miguel Cabrera at DH or something, or or uh, like Pulhos at first base. But, not, but that's really two thousand. Yeah, not this. Decade. Yeah, that's really two thousand. Yeah. But but actually, you know, I was looking through like war leaderboards by decade, like pretty much every decade except this one. Like, there's a pretty close between like the top three or four. Trout's like thirty war above anyone else. This right. Decade. Like it's right. Insane. He has just been the like, most dominant player in baseball for a long he, time. He's now. just a you know he's a transcendent player. You know, seventy three point four war over over the decade. I cheated a little bit, slogging him in left field because I needed to have Willie Mays on my team. But you know, you know, how do you not how do you not put Mike Trout in from this decade? You just you just have to. So with that, Sam, let's actually go position by position and let's give our full lineup. So sure. um, I'm gonna we're gonna start a catcher, go around the infield, outfield, pitcher, catcher, DH, uh, closer, whatever order. So um, at catcher, I have Johnny Bench. I have Yogi Berra. At first base, I have Lou Gehrig, uh, and let's say the uh, decade two. So I have Johnny Bench in the 70s. You have Bear in the 50s. That's I right. have Gehrig in the in the 30s. And I do as well. And uh, at second base, I have Napla Joy in the 1910s. And I have Rogers Hornsby in the 20s. At third base, I have Mike Schmidt in the 80s. But I ha- And I also have Mike Schmidt in the 70s. At shortstop, I got Ernie Banks in the 50s. And I have A Rod in the off. You know that's the uh, that's the official name for the. <laughs> Is that the official name? I, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I have at left field. I have uh, Barry Bonds in the '90s. And I have uh, Mike Trout in the uh, ten. Of the in right field, I have Ted Williams. Uh, about four career games in right field, but I got him playing right field for me in the 1940s. And I have Stan Musial in the 40s as well, although, you know, I you know I would love to have Ted Williams. He didn't know he was allowed to cheat like I did. Yeah. Uh, in center field, I have Mike Trout in the 2010s. In center field, I have Willie Mays in the 60s. On the hill, I have uh, Bob Gibson in the 1960s. And I have Walter Johnson in the 1910s. Uh, at DH, designated hitter, I got the one and only, the great Bambino, the Sultan of SWAT, Babe Ruth in the 1920s. And I have Barry Bonds in the 1990s. This was another little cheat, but he did play more games at DH than Babe Ruth did. Than Babe Ruth. That's a small technicality, but we're going <laughs> to let it slide. And finally, closing out games, I have Mariano Rivera from the 2000s. He's shutting things down on the hill. And, and I have the elite reliever of the 80s, Lee Smith out there shutting things down on the hill these are two remarkable baseball teams you know we'll we'll have to let us know on the comments of the video or on our twitter account whose team do you think is better who do you think would win well and also like who do we leave out we know we forgot somebody i know there's people out there clamoring for home run baker or some random person to be on this list so holler at us let us know who we left out let us know whose team is better um, and we'll come with uh, some of the feedback next episode. But I think that just about wraps it up for us here tonight. Uh, we really appreciate you guys stopping by and giving us a listen. We hope you enjoyed everything we went through. Please stay tuned for the next episode. We'll have more news on the developing situation in sports. We'll have another great Sackcast Corner, and we'll have a great surprise coming for you. So please stay tuned. Thank you guys very much for tuning in. Signing off for the Alonzo Bed, I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. That's all, folks.